Thank you for the invitation to share with you tonight. I want to share with you from a passage, and we're going to start in Isaiah 52, chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And we're going to read right on into Isaiah 53. Now, this is an amazing chapter. Most Jews do not read this portion that we're going to read tonight. Now, most Jews will tell you that they've read it because they assume it's on the yearly reading list because what happens in a synagogue is in every synagogue in the world, they will read the same Torah passage, the same passage from the first five books of, of what we call the Old Testament and, and, and what they call the, 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 uh, uh, the Tanakh. They will read, read uh, um, from the Torah, these first five books, but then they'll take a complementary passage from the Songs of the Prophets, which are the rest of the Tanakh, or what we would call our Old Testament here. And, and they'll read that, but they skip this portion. So this is not on their reading list. So whatever reason they've chosen to not read this, uh, when they do read it, it's quite amazing. So I'll tell you one of my, my experiences with this. I was with an Orthodox Jew in Israel, and Orthodox Jews will engage with me when I'm in Israel, they, they're less, less likely to engage with, with me here in the U.S. in conversations because in Israel they're less threatened. And I told him about Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53, and he says, oh, I know all this. I said, okay, let's read it together. And you tell me, you tell me, don't you think somebody could read this portion and think that it's about Jesus Christ? He says, okay, let's read it together. I said, you read it in your Hebrew Bible. I'll read it in my English Bible because my Hebrew is not very good. And I will read it and you just read along. I got halfway through this portion and he said, enough. And he closed his book, his Bible. This is what we're going to read tonight. Because it is so compelling that this is speaking about Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 52, reading from verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. It says, behold, my servant will prosper. We're going to learn about prosperity tonight. What does prosperity look like in the eyes of God concerning His Son? And it says, behold, my servant will prosper. Oh, how I love God's shalls and wills. When he says it will happen, it has to happen. Heaven and earth will break apart to make it happen. If he says it will happen, it has to happen. A man could say, I will be there, he may or may not come. A woman could say, I will do this, she may or may not do this. But when God says it will happen, it has to happen. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people... So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. When Jesus went to his scourging, when Jesus was scourged, he came out after his scourging, and he was so marred. The Bible here says his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was more beaten than any man had ever been beaten in a Roman scourging. This is not the Jewish scourging that's 39 lashes. This is, this is the Roman scourging, the ripping of the skin, covered in blood, skin ripped off. He comes out, Pilate, his judge looks at him and says, Behold the man! Behold the man! 
This is the image of a man. We are so distraught in our day where a man doesn't even know what it means to be a man. This is the image of a man. You want to know what it means to be a man? It's this. It's total self-donation for the other. If this word, if this thought, if this action is not the love of God, is not in love, it is not the love of God. If this is not in the other's best interest, it is not the love of God. If this word that I say to you, if this thought toward you, if this action is not in your best interest, it's not the love of God. This is total self-donation one for another. This is what He did. He was so shredded for our sins. He carried His sin, our sins with us upon Himself and took it upon Himself. He was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. Verse 15 in Isaiah 52. Thus He will sprinkle many nations... In this way, He will sprinkle many nations. This word nations, this word nations is characteristic of the sprinkling of the Gentiles going beyond Israel. Israel was too small for Him. The world is what He says. I'm going to bring them all in. And by the way, the world is too small for Him. Heaven and earth are too small for Him. This is why His Father has set Him at the right hand, at His very right hand. It says... Through this, He's going to sprinkle many nations. It is through this act that He opens up the door to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. He's going to sprinkle many nations. Any Jew will look at this and understand as soon as it says nations, this is a message to the Gentile world. This goes beyond Israel. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. The Gospel message goes right forward and penetrates the heart. Some people think it is difficult to witness to the, to the intellectuals. That is the only people that I ever witnessed to. It is. That's my world. I, I, 20 years ago, I finished up with a 10-year prison ministry. I, did, I wasn't generally witnessing to the intellectuals of society. For the last 20 years, I've just focused on campus ministry. I speak to undergraduates at Rice. I speak to undergraduates all over the country. I speak to graduate students at Rice and all over the country. And I speak to professors all over the country. I would say 80 to 90% of the people that I sit with and explain the gospel to receive the Lord. Yes, they receive the Lord. The gospel is penetrating. The gospel, the simple gospel message is penetrating. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him. You begin to speak the words of the Gospel. Boom! It shuts their mouths. For what had not been told them, they will see. All of a sudden, they start to see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. All of a sudden, they start understanding. We'll pick this up later on. Now let's turn to Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, it, it says in Isaiah, in Isaiah 63, he says, there's nobody can go for me. I'm going to bring salvation by my own right hand. God says, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. So he comes in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and he does this. To whom as the arm he describes himself, I will by my own right hand I will do this. This is how he describes it. I'm going to do this. He does it in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fully God comes to this earth 
as a man and witnesses to us and shares with us and teaches us what it is like to live before the Father. What does it mean to live before the Father? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. This is speaking of the root. This stem coming up from the root of Jesse. The Bible speaks of the root of Jesse. This is the father of King David. Jesus is of the line of David. Not via Solomon, but via Nathan, Nathan, David's other son, Nathan. Because via Solomon, the line had been cut off because of the sin of Jehoiakim. And so he tracks it right on back, through now, through through Nathan, his son. And it goes right to Jesus. He says he is of the root. He comes up like a tender shoot. He grew up before him of the root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He had no stately form or majesty. What happens when somebody who's some great high politician or some great king of some place, you immediately show some respect to them because of their position? Jesus had no stately form or majesty. None. That we should look upon him. No stately form of majesty. There was nothing there. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing in the physical appearance of Jesus that was attractive. I don't know what your view is of Jesus. But probably some six foot three European looking person. (laughs) Most Jews don't look like that. It says he had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon Him. There was nothing there. Physically. Now the Bible does speak of physical beauty in some people. It says David was ruddy and handsome appearance. It says Absalom, his son, David's son, had long, thick, flowing hair. It says, it says of, of uh, uh, King, King Saul, he was head and shoulders taller above all men. It says of Abigail that she was a beautiful woman. But what does it say of our Lord Jesus? He had no stately form of majesty, so there was nothing magisterial about him that made people look at him. He had no appearance that we should be attracted to him. No appearance. Have you ever not liked the way that you look? Ever? Did you know that's a big struggle with many of us? I've always wanted to be different. I want to be like six foot four and the life of every party in it. That was all beyond me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't change. That was it. There was nothing in Jesus that attracted people to him physically. So if you're not content, if you're not happy about the way you look, welcome to the life of the Messiah. I mean, this is, this is where he was. I'm not kidding you. When, when, when we moved to Houston 20 years ago, we had a real estate agent. And she must have built us up to, to, to her husband, telling him about us and everything, and telling him about me, that, that I was going to be working at Rice. And months later, we were at a, at a we'd been invited to a common uh, gathering. And she was so excited to see me there, because now her husband was there, and she brought her husband to come and see me. And so she says, oh, wait here, I've got to get my husband. He's got to meet you. I've told him everything about you. And he came walking up and there's this big Texan man in his Texan boots and he stops and he looks at me and goes, Is that it? 
He turns to his wife. He says, is that it? Says, That's it. I mean, Jews have little DNA. Our brains are big, but our DNA is small. But that's the way Jesus was. Did you know, I, some Messianic scholars, read this verse. Now this will really surprise you. They read this verse and they say, Jesus was probably five foot four with crooked teeth. And you say, no, that can't be. That's not my image. I'm just telling you what it says. It says there was nothing in him physically. You've got to deal with what the scriptures say. There was nothing in him physically that attracted people to him. So if you feel bad about the way you look, you can't change that. But welcome to the world of the Messiah. That in spite of the way we feel about our own looks, God can use us powerfully. If he had been movie star looking, then we would say, well, it's no wonder the way he looks. No, there was nothing there. This is our Lord. This is our Lord. There was nothing in Him magisterial. There was nothing in Him physically that made people look upon Him. So thank God for the way you look and say, Lord, use me just as I am. Use me. It says, it says He was despised. Verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and forsaken of men. Despised! Now, I know that there's people that don't like me. I don't know anybody who despises me. I don't. This man was despised by so many. You think you have a rough life? Welcome to the world of the Messiah. He says, it says, he was despised and forsaken of men. Have you ever been forsaken? Have you ever had anybody forsake you? Have you ever been left? Has somebody left you? It says he was forsaken. He understands what you're going through. He understands your pain. This is our Messiah, a faithful high priest, not some great movie star, not some great earthly king. This is our Messiah. This is the description of him. It says that... that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Other translations will sometimes say that, that he was, he was, he was a, a man who had pain and acquainted with sickness. Have you ever had pain and sickness? Have you ever had sorrow and grief? My Jesus knows what that's like. Our Jesus knows what that's like. You see this picture. There's so much revealed about Jesus in the Old Testament that's not even recorded in the New Testament. Here we have a description of him as a person, what he was like. It says when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, he started to teach the people. And it says, they, they said after he had appeared to them and, 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 and he disappeared from the presence, they said, were not our hearts burning within us when he spoke to us along the road and opened the scriptures to us? He opened them. What scriptures? Not the New Testament. It hadn't even been written yet. It was the Old Testament. He was opening this word to them and explaining, it says, he explained himself in the scriptures. This is what we're, he's talking about. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. They hid their face from him. That means they look at him like, oh, 
not that guy. I don't know if that pain has ever hit you. Have you ever had that pain? Once, when I was in college, there were several guys, myself and several other guys, and we were talking to this really beautiful young lady. And I wasn't saying much. I mean, what am I going to say? And everybody's talking. And I just said, like, one sentence. And she looked at me like... (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you, that broke my heart. It did. Even to this day, there's still a little wound there. I mean, you guys may laugh about this, but I'm telling you, you all of you have been hit by this. All of you have been hit by this. And you know the pain, you know the sting. Like, why don't I just go somewhere and just die? You know what I'm talking about. It says, he was despised. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He knows what it's like to have a person just turn away in disgust. We didn't, he was despised. So it says it twice in this one verse, in verse three, he was despised in the beginning. And then in the last sentence of it again, he was despised. Do you think the scriptures is trying to teach us something? No, Jesus wasn't despised. Yes, he was despised multiple times. This is our Lord. This is what he's gone through for us. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Again, pains is sickness, sorrows and grief. What is your pain? What is the pain that you go through today? What is the pain? He says, he says that our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Yet we just let him go. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. That we just, He got what he deserved. I remember my mother. The first time, this, this was in, in the 1970s, when I came to the Lord. She wanted to see what I was into. I said, go ahead, read the New Testament. And she read the entire New Testament. Something that very few Christians have even done. From Matthew to Revelation, she read the entire thing. I said, what would you think? She said, I don't blame them for killing Jesus for what he said. Who is he? This young man in his 30s coming against these religious leaders that have dedicated their lives to helping people. Who is he to say to them, you're whitewashed tombs? How dare he speak like that? He got what he deserved. Does that shake you up? Well, if you're not a believer and you're a Jew, that's exactly what you're going to say. Then I told her to read the Old Testament. She read the entire Old Testament from beginning to end. Again, something that very few believers have even done. When she got done, I said, what'd you think? She said, he warned us. God warned us over and over again. He warned us. My mother passed away just a few months ago and I got hold of her Bible. And, and my dad was taking, taking her jewelry and giving it away to the kids. I said, I, I don't care for any of the jewelry. I just want the Bible. He says, you can have the Bible. She recorded nine times where she read that Bible from Genesis to Revelation. She came to the Lord in the year 2000. It's recorded right there on on page one of Genesis chapter one, the the day that she came to the Lord and the day that she got baptized. She said, my husband, Eli, he's gone to his poker game. I'm getting baptized today. She wrote it right in her Bible. The Word of God is powerful. You want to see somebody saved, you get them to read the New Testament twice. 
If you do not know the Lord, I challenge you to read the New Testament twice. And when you read it, pick it up and say, Lord, speak to me. If this is real, speak to me. Sometime during that process, you will not complete it a second time. Sometime during the process, you will get saved. It happened. I mean, there was a professor at Rice. He was reading the New Testament. I said, you get saved. He laughed at me. A little while later, he came to me and says, I just want you to know I became a Christian. I said, I knew you would. You can't read the New Testament twice without getting saved. It says in verse 5, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. He was pierced through for our transgressions. How much clearer would you like God to make it? Could He have been more explicit? This is a picture of Jesus right here in the Old Testament. You say, well, it must have been written after His life. No, it couldn't have been. This is all figured out, guys. Let me tell you, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls are from 300 years, 300 B.C., before Jesus was born. They record Isaiah 53 more than any other thing. They record Isaiah 53. Over and over again, Isaiah 53 is recorded. This was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. We have copies of the Scriptures that date back before the birth of Christ. This is describing our Lord. This is the description of Him. The evidence is right here. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. You know, the, the Scriptures talk about this. The Scriptures tell us this. It says that Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus died for the ungodly. In, in, uh, in Romans chapter 4, it says He dies for the ungodly. He gives Himself for the ungodly. Think about this. This is an interesting thing. That, that Jesus would, would suffer and die for the ungodly. In, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says that... He gives Himself for the ungodly. He is our advocate. You know what an advocate does? An advocate pleads on behalf of the innocent. Please. They plead on behalf of the innocent. Jesus pleads on behalf of the guilty. He pleads on our behalf. We are guilty and He pleads on our behalf. He says, come to Me. This is the message of the Gospel. Come to Me. Come to Me. This is the message of the Gospel. Come to Me. All of us like sheep have gone astray. If you think you're pretty good, you're deluded. You're not pretty good. Let me tell you what we're going to have. Within 50 years, 100 years at the most, but I think within 50 years, we'll be able to plug right into a brain and project up your thoughts on a screen. How would you like that? How'd you like your thoughts on a little screen on your forehead so that your spouse can see exactly what you're thinking. How would you like that? If our thoughts do not condemn us, we are deluded. Our very thoughts condemn us. We are corrupt, ultimate corruption in every way. If there be any good in us, if there be any good, this is from God. We of ourselves are totally corrupt. 
And it says, all of us, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. Even his vacillating judge came to him and said, you're not even going to speak up? And Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. I don't find any guilt in him. There was no guilt in Jesus. He had trial before the Sanhedrin. He had trial before the civil courts. He had trial before, before the Sanhedrin again. Again and again he was tried. Yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Jesus was cut off out of the land of the living for our sake. He was cut off out of the land of the living for our sake. If you do not know the Lord today, my heart is totally for you. This message is for you. If anybody gets something out of this, other than you guys, that's great. But this is for the unbeliever today. I am just driven to go after the unbelievers. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I want to say the message of the gospel is come. Come. It says that He was cut off out of the land of the living for our transgressions. For our transgressions. He says, come to me. Come to me. This is your day. This is your day. The Bible describes this. You are among the elect. The elect means those who are called to come. And you say, well, how do you know I'm among the elect? Because you wouldn't be here if you weren't among the elect. You wouldn't be here. Really, Satan would have you doing something somewhere else. You wouldn't be here if you weren't among the elect. This is for you to come this day to Jesus. Don't let this day pass by. I have no authority to tell you this message tomorrow. The Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Come to Jesus today. Today. He has given His life for you. Verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet He was a rich man in His death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was going to be thrown in a commoner's grave, but a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea came and, and got him and put him in his own grave. He was in a rich man's grave. How, how, can you, how can you write this 700 years before the man is born without this being of God? This has all been worked out. Any historian will tell you this is way predates the birth of Jesus. Any historian will tell you that. So if you say, oh, this is a bunch of nonsense. No, you are believing a bunch of nonsense. This is not nonsense. This is real stuff. And your life is on the line. Don't let this day pass by. For all you know, the, the decree may come. Leave him alone. He's given unto idols, as the scriptures say in Hosea. Or even worse, set your house in order, for tomorrow you shall die. Come to Jesus today. Come to Him. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord 
will prosper in his hand. There it is again. He will prosper. He will prosper. It has to happen. God said it will happen. He will prosper. You want to know the prosperity message? It's tonight. This is the prosperity message. This is what it means to prosper in the Lord. I don't know what kind of views you have about other types of prosperity, but this is what's imaged for us in prosperity in the Lord. This is what's imaged for us. Prosperity in the Lord is total self-donation, one for the other. If you come to that point, you are prospering. When you give of yourself for the other, this is scriptural prosperity. Verse 11, And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. The message of the gospel is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The New Testament tells us that Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. Think about that. Why does Jesus live? He lives to pray for us. Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. Are you a father? Are you a husband? You are called to pray for your family. You are called to pray. You can't just say, oh, I leave that up to my wife. No, you are called to pray for your family. You are called to pray for your wife. You are called to pray for your children. I rise up first thing in the morning. I pray for my wife and I pray for my children. We are called to do this. Jesus demonstrates this to us. He intercedes for the transgressors. He intercedes on our behalf. Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. We are called to do this. This is our job. And I'm going to wrap up with this. This is the thing that I see breaks all the intellectuals. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is, the, this is the hurdle right here. You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And I will look at these intellectuals and I will say, it is hard to believe in a resurrection, isn't it? They go, yeah, it is hard. Because we've only got this data point. It's not like you see people raising from the dead every day. And then I say to them this. You know, you can look at this. You can examine this. There's more written, more documented about the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in that period of history and time. More written about that than anything else. Any scholar... Any scholar of religion, regardless of what religion they're from, any academic scholar of religion, they can be Hindu, they can be Christian, they can be Buddhist, any academic scholar of religion will indeed say that the disciples of Jesus believed him to have risen from the dead. All right? But you don't even need that. 
The only way that I can explain, and this is exactly how I explain it to them, the only way that I can explain how men and women all the time, I see it with my own eyes, intellectuals, men and women, all the time, coming to Jesus and believing in His resurrection is this, that God has placed this truth on the heart of every man and woman. That's the only way. There is nothing so incredible as a resurrection that I could make you believe in this in a five-minute conversation. No way. If I say, I'm going to make you believe in Santa Claus. No, no, you're never going to walk out believing in Santa Claus. But because this is true, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, physically from the dead, in, in, in Luke's gospel, it says that in, in the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, it says Jesus appeared to his disciples and they thought they were seeing a ghost, a spirit. And he said to them, come, touch my hands, touch me, feel me. I have flesh and bones. I'm not just a spirit. Then he said to them, you got something to eat? And they thought, uh, let's give him some fish. Jesus likes fish. He was always cooking fish on the beach and... It's, if, if, if he eats it, it's got to be Jesus. And he took the fish and he says he ate it. He says, I ask you. He says, have you, he said, he said, spirits don't eat. Spirits don't eat. Jesus said that. Jesus said, spirits don't eat. He said, you see me eating. I ask you, have you ever seen a spirit eat? No, you haven't. Jesus is right. Spirits don't eat. He rose physically from the dead. It's not just a spiritual thing. He said to Thomas, Thomas didn't want to believe. He says, I will never believe in this. In the end of John's Gospel. Jesus said, appeared to him. He said, Shalom Aleichem. He says, come, take your finger. Because Thomas said, I won't believe until I stick my finger into the holes in his hands, until, until I stick my hand into the hole in his side. So he appears to them. He says, Thomas, come here. And Thomas is like, he says, come here, Thomas. You take your finger and you stick it in a hole in my hand. Now I want you to take your hand and stick it in the hole in my side. Can you imagine? Thomas is like, Jesus, no, deep, deep, go in. This is flesh. Jesus rose physically from the dead. I am speaking now to the unbeliever here. God has placed the truth in your heart already. The truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. That truth is already there in your heart. And I ask you this day, as I pray, I'm going to close in prayer, to invite Jesus into your heart, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and I believe He's risen from the dead. If you are a believer, and you have never believed, really, in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, just the spiritual, I'm calling you right back to what the Scriptures say. We must believe in His resurrection. And His resurrection was not a spiritual thing, it was a physical thing. So physical that the disciples died because of this. Died for this testimony. It is physical. And if you've drifted away from the Lord, I'm calling you back this day. The Word of God is true. Every word in this book is true. Every word. Let everything else be a lie. This book is true. Long after you're dead and gone, this, this word will remain. Because it's true. This book is true. This was a prophecy, and it's just piled upon fact upon fact, evidence upon evidence. How much more would you like to understand that this book is true? To bow before God and to say, Lord, thank you for your word. Oh, how I love his word.
Oh, how I love the Bible. It is true. Every word in the Bible is true. Read it, meditate on it, and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you come upon this place right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray here this day for those who do not know you that they would repeat in, with me in this prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Thank you for carrying my sin on the cross with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that he has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. And Father, I pray today for those that know you, but have never taken deep hold of the fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that this day they would take hold of that and that they would trust your word for those that have vacillated concerning your word. Father, I pray that they would take hold and bow before you and say, Lord, forgive me for sinning against you by not believing your word. Lord, I pray, forgive me. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. Give them a greater love for the Word of God. A greater love for Jesus, in whom is bodied all goodness and all truth. The very Son of God. The one whom we worship. The one whom we honor. The one who is written about here. The very arm of God who brought salvation to this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Glory be to your name. Glory be to your name, for you bore it all upon yourself on the cross. Our sin you carried on our behalf. You were wounded, you were abused, uh, abused, you were beaten, you were marred more than any other man. You are the one, O Lord. Praise be to your name. Glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. And for your glory, I offer this to you, Lord. Amen.